Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans, chapter 13. Um, Today, we are planning to wrap up this three-week series that we've been in called Jesus and Politics. And some of you, uh, maybe myself included, will be very happy to know that next week we are going to move on to something completely unrelated to politics entirely, Uh, and that will be a series all about the topic of work and how we approach work and think about work as followers of Jesus. So next week, no more talk of politics. I know that is everywhere in our world right now. I'm glad that we've gotten to do this series. Somebody's clapping because we're going to be done with politics. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, We feel like it has been helpful for us as a church family to talk through this stuff briefly just to know how to approach it as followers of Jesus well and how to really be a light uh, in the midst of a lot of darkness in this particular topic and arena of life. But obviously, we will be glad to move on to something where we're not talking about politics every single week. Um, So the series on work is one that I've been really excited about for a while. Hope you'll make plans to join us for that. It'll really take us through the remainder of the summer. Um, But today, before we get there, uh, we have our work cut out for us because this morning, I want us to spend some time talking about the purpose of government in the first place. That's what I want us to try to tackle in our time together. I think at the end of the day, a lot of our debate and disagreement about politics in America can be traced back to really a lack of consensus in our country about what government is actually for to begin with. And I think really that comes down to two questions. On the one hand, what can or what should government do in our society? And on the other hand, what can't or what shouldn't government try to do in our society? I think often, because we as a society can't agree on the answers to those two questions, we have a hard time agreeing on much else when it comes to politics. So to get just a little more specific on what I mean by that, generally speaking, uh, when people on the political right hear the question, what should or what can government do? their answer is usually something like, as little as possible, right? They come from the perspective of limited government. That's the terminology for that. In other words, they believe that government should do as little as they need to do just to create a functional society on some level. That's what people on the right believe. And then generally speaking, people on the left hear that same question, what should government do? And their answer is quite different. Their answer is, well, The government should do anything that they can do to alleviate some of the problems and issues in our society. And to be honest, there are quite a few problems and issues in our society. So in their mind, in their understanding, the government needs to do a good bit. 
And so at least on the surface, you can start to see why there's so much disagreement, so much debate, so much argument going on in our society about what politics is and what politics should do and what politics should be like, because each side seems to be starting into the question with very different understandings, with very different perspectives on what the purpose of government is. And then still, there are probably other people who fall somewhere in between those two categories, right? So maybe you're here this morning, and you think government honestly needs to do way more than they're doing in certain areas, and way less than they're doing in other areas. That's yet another perspective on all of this. But I think all of that collectively just reinforces the need for us to have a conversation about what the purpose of government actually is in the first place. If we're going to get anywhere in regards to political discussions that are being had in our country, we need to first see if we can come to some sort of common ground, some sort of consensus when it comes to all of these issues. We need some sort of consensus about why government exists in the first place, what it's there for. And we could accomplish that or try to accomplish that by winning all the progressives to the right or by trying to win all the conservatives to the left, or by trying to win everybody on either side to the middle. But since that strategy is not working so great in our country so far, I figured we'd try something else. Does that make sense? So this morning, I want us to start not with what the people on the right say the purpose of government is, and not with what people on the left say the purpose of government is, but with what the Bible says the purpose of government is. That's where we're going to start this morning. So what we'll do is spend the first half or so of the teaching talking about what the benefits of government are, what government can do and what government should do according to the Bible. And then we'll spend the second half or so talking about the limits of government. In other words, what can government and legislation not actually do and what it shouldn't attempt to do even. But quickly, before we do all of that, I think it's probably worth clarifying briefly what I mean by the word government. So when I say government this morning, I'm not just talking about government agencies. I'm not just talking about politicians. I'm using the word government to refer to everything from politicians to government officials to government agencies to legislation to law enforcement and everything in that arena. I'm calling all of those things together government because all of those things contribute collectively to how we are governed as a society. So when I say government, I want you to have in mind all of those things together. So with that in in mind, let's take a look at what Romans 13 says about the purpose of government. So this is the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul, and he says this starting in verse 1 of Romans 13. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Stay with me for a second. We'll unpack all of this here in a few minutes. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Okay, there's obviously a lot in that passage. 
But the backbone of what Paul is saying here, the main idea that he's getting at, is to unpack one primary purpose of governments and governing authorities in our world. To explain one main reason that those things are put into place. And that reason, Paul says, is that they are appointed by God to discourage evil behavior by punishing and giving consequences to those who are guilty of that behavior. At the end of the day, that is one of the reasons that governments exist in our world, to reinforce what is good and to discourage or curb what is evil. Now, all that said, I do realize that for many people, that might be a difficult concept to swallow just weeks after an event like the murder of George Floyd by the governing authorities. It's a difficult idea because on numerous occasions, we've actually seen governing authorities in our society and others abuse that power of the sword that they've been given. At times, we've seen these authorities use their authority not just to punish what is evil, but to punish what is innocent, or at least to punish what is evil in completely disproportionate ways at times. And another issue that some of us might have is with this idea of governing authorities being, quote, instituted by God. That can be a difficult thing to stomach for some of us in an age where, quite honestly, a lot of white evangelicals are attempting to justify everything that President Trump does by saying that he was put there by God in the first place. Now, usually, those same people did not have the same perspective when Obama was in office, but that's a whole different sermon for a different day, right? That was last week. But the point is, I think a lot of us read this passage or read a passage like this, and we find it honestly kind of dangerous to say that all authorities are instituted by God when it comes to our government, or to call them something like God's servants, like this passage does. So given those sorts of pushbacks, let's just take a minute or two before we continue to unpack what this passage truly means and what it doesn't mean. So when a lot of us read a passage like this, we tend to zero in on phrases like all governing authorities are instituted by God and that they are, quote, God's servants. And I think a lot of us read those phrases and and we read it as saying that God endorses anything and everything that governing authorities do since after all, he put them there in the first place. But upon a closer read, I don't think that's actually what Paul means at all in the context of this passage. Rather, Paul's statement in Romans 13 actually ties into a much larger theme in the scriptures, and that's that God sometimes works through secular governments and secular leaders to accomplish aspects, and that word right there is very important, to accomplish aspects of his will. So honestly, if you read through the Bible, God calls a lot of outright wicked leaders in the Bible his servants. He uses that same language for a lot of leaders. And when it says that, it obviously doesn't mean that God approved of everything that they did. It doesn't mean everything they did was okay. It simply means that he used them at times to accomplish aspects of what he wanted. So one example of this, if you're curious, would be how God used the nation of Babylon at one point to carry off the Israelites into exile. We actually talked briefly about that in week one of this series. So what's interesting is that if you read through the Bible, you'll notice that God makes it clear throughout the scriptures that he doesn't approve of hardly anything about the nation of Babylon. 
But in that instance, in that particular event, he used the nation of Babylon to accomplish an aspect of his will, to accomplish an aspect of what he wanted to accomplish. And just to add to that, governments being, quote, instituted by God does not mean that those governments are exempt from God's wrath themselves. Because often in the Bible, those who are called instruments of God's wrath, like the language of this passage, they subsequently become objects of God's wrath themselves because they went about what they did in evil or unjust sorts of ways. So when this passage, when Romans 13 says that the government and governing authorities are God's servants, when it says that they are instituted by God, that is not a blanket endorsement of everything that government leaders or police officers do, not by a long shot. Rather, it's simply meant to communicate that the government sometimes accomplishes justice in God's stead. That's the point that Paul is trying to get across. And one way that they do that is by being, in Paul's words from Romans, an avenger that carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And even that part has to be read in context of the book of Romans. You see, back at the end of Romans 12, right before the passage that we're reading this morning, Paul is actually instructing followers of Jesus that when people commit evil against them, they shouldn't take revenge into their own hands, that they shouldn't respond to evil with evil. He actually puts it like this in Romans 12, verse 19. We'll throw this up on the screen for you. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So Paul tells these followers of Jesus in Romans 12 that they don't have to take revenge on people that do things against them because God can be trusted to settle the score on their behalf. In other words, God will see to it that justice is served. And then in Romans 13, he talks about one specific way that God sometimes accomplishes justice, and that is through even secular governments. He calls these governing authorities avengers, which is actually the same exact language from chapter 12. So when you read this passage in its original context, Romans 13 in its original context, this is not a passage about how governing authorities are always good or are always right, not at all, but rather about how God uses even the worst of governments at times to bring about true justice. So while a passage like this one might be difficult for us in light of recent events in our country, I think it is simultaneously so important that we grasp what Paul is saying here. Because according to Romans 12 and 13, one of the things that discourages each person in our society from taking revenge out on other people, from taking that process into our own hands is the reality of a government that at least has justice as its aim. Now, some of what is being protested right now in our country are ways that our institutions are not doing that very well, ways that they're not fulfilling that purpose very well. But listen, that does not mean that the concept of government itself is wrong. It means that we need to reimagine, reform, and revise our government to be more reflected of its intended purpose because according to the scriptures, those institutions were put there to name and discourage and deal with evil so that we could have a more functional society as a result. 
And that in and of itself, that purpose of government is a needed thing, is a good and needed thing for us to have. For cities to function and for societies to work, there has to be some form of government in place. There have to be laws. There has to be legislation. There has to be some means of enforcing that legislation. There has to be a system on some level for rewarding good and curbing the effects of evil. Otherwise, society can't function, much less flourish and thrive. So just to help illustrate why I say that, imagine with me, if you will, that we decide as a society that we no longer want any governance to interfere with our road and highway traffic. Let's just say we make that decision as a society. Let's say we start thinking about it and we determine that all the traffic laws and traffic signals and all the rules of the road, that all of those things are just a little bit too stifling to our personal freedoms, right? That they're unnecessary. They put too many restrictions on how we drive and how fast we can drive. And so we just decide we're going to get rid of all governance when it comes to our roads and highways. Now, Ironically, we would actually need a government to make that decision, but again, that's a different sermon for a different day, but let's just say we figure it out, right? We repeal all governance, all types of legislation, all types of traffic laws when it comes to how we drive. So we do that, and now our roads have no dotted lines, no solid lines, no speed limits, no stop signs, no traffic lights, just unlimited, unmarked stretches of pavement with a sign every once in a while that says, good, look out, good luck out there, everybody, right? Let's imagine that's how our road system works. And also, there would be nobody to regulate who gets a driver's license and who doesn't, right? Because, I mean, if nine-year-olds out there want to drive a car, who are we to limit their freedom, Right? That would be ridiculous. And so anybody can get a driver's license. It doesn't matter how good or how bad they are at driving. Anybody can drive. There would be nobody to take care of traffic accidents that happen on the road because, after all, there's no such thing as right or wrong things to do on the road. There's just what you do, right? I was actually describing this to Eric, one of our pastors who leads, uh, usually leads us in worship, and he said he grew up in Nepal, and he was like, dude, that actually sounds like Nepal to me, actually. That sounds like exactly how they do traffic there. Uh, and I was asking him, I was like, okay, so help me understand, like, what do they do in Nepal if there's an accident? So let's just say somebody's driving on their way, and somebody just comes out of nowhere and T-bones them. What do they do in that situation? He was like, well, if people witness it, what happens is that the person who they think was at fault, as soon as they get out of the vehicle that person usually gets mobbed and beat up. And I was like, I do not want to drive in that type of society. I'm not that confident in my fighting skills. I think I would rather there be laws and regulations for how we drive. So let me just ask you, does that sound like a recipe for a healthy way of going about life on our roads and highways? With no regulations, no guidance, nothing to govern those decisions at all. And just in case you're thinking, I don't know, I think we could figure it out. I think we're all good people. I think we could do it. Uh, right, because the one time we are all on our best behavior is when we're in traffic, right? That's when the human light really shines the brightest is when we're stuck in traffic. It would be chaos is what it would be. It would be pure chaos. So all of that to say can you start to see why government is actually a helpful thing, at least in its original form, at least in its intended design? Because the reality is that day-to-day -day life in our society 
is actually a lot more like driving in traffic than we probably realize. You and I are constantly moving around our society at high speeds, making hundreds of decisions on a regular basis that all affect the other people around us and the systems and structures around us, probably in more ways than we usually realize. And for a society like that to function and thrive and flourish, there has to be some sort of structure in place to govern and guide those types of decisions and actions. And that's what government is. Otherwise, the world would be a far worse place to live than it is already. For our society to function, we need governments and laws and enforcers of those laws, at least in some form. Now, we need all of those institutions to function in just ways, right? And we need to continually reevaluate how we allocate resources within that government. So we need to not just spend money on things like politician salaries and law enforcement. We also need to spend money on things like mental health and education and resources for the disadvantaged and all of that. Yes and amen to all of that. But we do need government. Government in its original intended form is a helpful, beneficial thing for humanity to have. So we'll talk about this a lot more in uh, our work series that we start next week. But one of the first things that God does in the story of the Bible is that he puts Adam and Eve, he puts humanity in a garden, and he tells them to rule and reign over creation. He tells them, in essence, to govern. He tells them to create order and structure upon which the rest of creation can thrive. And God does that before sin ever enters the picture. It's actually a part of his good design for the world. So government in its intended form is a good thing. So here's my point with all of this. If you are the type of person who says things often like, well, if we could just get government out of the way and get them to stop interfering with people's lives, we'd be better off. I would just invite you to think a little more critically about that statement. Is that really what would happen? Because I don't know about you, I've been reading through the Bible, a lot of us have been reading through the Bible this year. We just read Judges a couple months ago. If you read the book of Judges, there was actually a refrain that came up several times in that book, and it said, in those days there was no king in Israel, and each man did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, what, what happens when there's no leadership, no laws, no enforcement of those laws is that it does not lead to a peaceful, conflict-free existence. It usually leads to every person defining good and evil for themselves. And if you know anything about your Bible, you know that does not go well for humanity when we start to do that. So listen, let's debate and let's sort through and let's have conversations about what and how much government should do in our society. Let's absolutely have all of those conversations. But let's not settle for overly simplistic answers like, we don't need government, or the less government, the better in every scenario. I think the scriptures would actually teach us to be a little more thoughtful, a little more nuanced than that. Governments in their original design help create a functional, flourishing society. That's the benefit of government. Okay, but that said... All of that considered, there is a very important limit to government that we need to talk about as well. For what that is, turn with me just a few pages to the left in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8. So we're going to read just a few verses from this chapter about what Paul calls the law. That's the language that he uses. Now, just for clarity, in this passage, Paul is talking specifically about the Old Testament law in the Bible. In other words, God's laws and regulations. He's not really talking about the laws of our modern government. But the reason I still want us to look at this passage is because I think the point he's making about laws still stands. I think his logic actually applies to all laws and all governance, whether they are from God or the Bible or otherwise. Because he's simply trying to make a point about something very important that law cannot accomplish in our world. So let's take a look, starting in verse 2 of Romans 8. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So stop right there for just a second. So for all the good that comes from legislation and from laws and from governments, even from God's own law and governance, there is one thing that laws and legislation cannot do. They cannot change the human heart. They can't do it. They don't have that ability. Laws and legislation and government, no matter who thinks them up and no matter who enforces them, cannot actually change human beings. A law that says do not murder cannot keep a person from desiring murder. It can only discourage them from going through with it. A law that says uh, do not steal cannot keep somebody from wanting to take someone else's stuff. It can only provide negative consequences for them to do it. So legislation, whether it comes from God or whether it comes from man, cannot change us from the inside out. But there is someone who can, Paul says. Take a look with me at the rest of verse 3 and 4 in Romans 8. It says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Paul says here that Jesus came to do what laws and legislation could never do. It came to generate in us what no government or no legislation could generate, and that's a new heart within us. For that, we actually need a Savior. You see, by sending Jesus, God provided not just a standard for us to live up to, not just a morality for us to try and achieve, but actually a rescuer from our sin. See, the reason that injustice exists in our world is not because we have a whole bunch of good people that sometimes do bad things. That's not the reality of our world. Injustice exists because we all have a tendency towards doing bad things. As one philosopher once said, the line between good and evil runs straight through every human heart. And evil exists because some people in our world have allowed that tendency towards evil and injustice in them to go completely unchecked for far too long. That's where evil and injustice come from in our world. So if things are going to get better in our world, what we all ultimately need is for Jesus to rescue us from that tendency, to rescue us all from that tendency. 
You see, the problem underneath all the other problems is actually sin in the human heart. Our ultimate problem is that we have been alienated from God, and therefore we do not see things like we should. We don't relate to people like we should. We don't approach things in our world the way that we should. The reason for injustice is sin. The reason for racism is sin. The reason for police brutality is sin. And until the sin in the human heart is addressed, we will continue to have some version of all of those things and more in our world. And in Jesus, God has done precisely that. He has provided a way to deal with the sin that is in each human heart. He has provided a way for each and every person who trusts him to be rescued out of the sin and injustice that pervades our hearts. Jesus came to planet Earth. He lived a life free from any sin, from any injustice. And when he was put to death on the cross, he gave us a way to put all of that to death in us in our own hearts. In Paul's words, Jesus, quote, condemned sin in the flesh. Meaning that when you and I decide to trust in Jesus, what we're doing is latching on to the hand that pulls us out of our sin and injustice. What we're doing is following the one who makes us a part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And that happens by being given a new heart within us, a heart that longs for justice over injustice, a heart that longs for selflessness over selfishness. Laws and legislation and governments cannot do that in a person, but the good news of Jesus can, and it does. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in me. I've seen it happen in dozens of you guys. That is what the good news of Jesus can do. So here's my point. If you are the type of person who thinks Man, if we could just get the right person in office and the right people out of office, if we could just get the right laws passed and if we could get the wrong laws repealed, if we could get all of that to happen, if we could get the right systems and structures in place, our country would finally be everything that it needs to be. If that's your perspective, I may have disappointing news for you. Because even if every politician you liked were elected and every law you wanted passed were passed, people would still be sinful and injustice would still exist. And listen, one of the reasons that many of us have a continual frustration and dissatisfaction with our government is because we are waiting for it to accomplish something that it does not have the ability to accomplish. No matter how many laws we pass against murder, murder will still happen. No matter how many laws we pass against racism, racism will still exist because government does not have the ability to change that in a person. Now, it is very important that you hear what I'm about to say next. None of that means that we shouldn't support legislation against those things and more. None of this is a cop-out, okay? So when I say only Jesus can fix the problems in our world, that's not me saying, okay, let's just all stay out of government then and let's just pray for people and invite them to church because that's all we can do. That's not my point at all. We don't pass laws because laws eliminate problems. We pass laws because laws often curb the negative impact of problems, and that's different. MLK once said it this way, I think it's so very helpful. He said, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important. 
That's why we pass laws, not because we think they eliminate all problems, but because they curb the negative impact of the problems. So none of this is me saying that laws and government are purposeless. They still serve a very important purpose. They are meant to help curb and discourage and minimize the effect of evil on our world. And often, they're quite effective at doing that. But at the same time, we should never operate under the illusion that if we get the right person in office and the right legislation passed, it will fix all of our country's problems. It will not. It may help but it will not fix our problems because politics and government do not have that ability. Only the good news of Jesus does. So instead of government and politics being the thing that we look to for hope, here's what I would suggest we do instead. That we as followers of Jesus, equipped with his vision of human flourishing, his vision of peace and equality and justice, we should bring all of those things with us into our politics rather than looking to politics to provide those things for us. That's it. That's what we're going for. And that posture comes from knowing that while government is helpful, it is also not ultimate. Though the government has its benefits, it also has its limits. It helps us create a functioning, thriving society, yes, but it cannot solve the problem underneath all the other problems. Which means, I think as followers of Jesus, we should carry a sort of both-and approach to politics and government. On the one hand, we don't withdraw from all things political in our world because we realize that the political world is one very important way to work towards the common good. That's what we talked about in week one. But on the other hand, we don't place all of our hope in politics either because we realize at the end of the day, government and legislation cannot fix what is broken. So we respond by seeking the common good of our society through politics but also not only seeking it through politics. We advocate for policies and candidates that we think best create a thriving, flourishing society, but we also work towards a thriving and flourishing society in our personal lives too, outside of anything in the political world, because we aren't assuming that government alone will do the trick for all of that. This is the dynamic that I think all of this creates in us as followers of Jesus. So as a couple examples of this, um, I personally know quite a few families who lean very conservative, politically speaking. They feel like the conservative, the Republican platform, does a better job capturing the heart of Jesus for the world. And like we said the past two weeks, that's fine for them to have that belief. As long as they don't think the Republican platform does a complete job capturing the heart of Jesus, that's fine for them to have a party of preference. So it's fine for them to have a political leaning, but these same people, these same families that lean very conservative, politically speaking, they will often give their money and their time and their energy to plenty of organizations that actually lean left, politically speaking, because they want to do their part personally to make up for what they see as shortcomings in their party. Many of these families that lean right, politically speaking, have fostered multiple children from the poorest neighborhoods in their cities because that matters to them, even if it doesn't seem to matter all that much to their party. And then on the other side of things, I know quite a few people who lean very left, politically speaking, 
because they think the systems and structures on the left do a better job of capturing the heart of Jesus for the poor and for the disadvantages, things like that. And that's a fine perspective for those people to have. But at the same time, they realize, they have an understanding that the systems and structures that the left sets up do not ultimately fix what is broken in our world. And so these same people will actually give their money to pro-life organizations that help women with unplanned pregnancies, the types of organizations that a lot of people on the left would criticize them for giving money to. These same people spend time mentoring at-risk youth in their spare time, coaching sports teams in their neighborhoods, because they know that at the end of the day, even the best government and structures and systems cannot lead a person to Jesus. But investing in them relationally on a personal level absolutely can. So do you see the nuance in these people? You see the both-and approach in their, how they kind of approach the topic of politics, how they approach the topic of government. It's both and, it's nuanced. So my point is that when we understand this, when we understand the benefits and the limits of government in our world, when we understand that from the scriptures, it creates this beautiful, nuanced, kaleidoscopic approach to the world around us. It gives us the ability as followers of Jesus to allow the government to do what it can do while never expecting the government to do what it can't do. It creates this both-and approach to the issues of our society where we refuse to see through the tunnel vision of the right or the left, and where we instead work towards the common good of our world with both our political and our personal resources at the same time. So as we wrap up both today's teaching and this entire series, let me just ask you a few questions. Does all of this describe your perspective on politics and government? So first, as we mentioned in week one of the series, do you even care about any of this stuff in the first place? Do you even consider the role that politics plays in working towards the common good of our society? Is that even a thought in your mind on a regular basis? And then, as we mentioned in week two last week, have Have you refused to give your allegiance to either political party? Have you refused to let them claim all of your life and frame how you see every single issue and every single person in our world? And then from today, as a follower of Jesus, do you have a functional understanding of both the benefits of government and also the limits of it? Do you support government's efforts to help us establish a fair and just society while also not expecting it to fix problems that it can't fix? As followers of Jesus, I think those are the types of questions that we should be asking ourselves in regards to this arena of life. When it comes to our involvement and posture towards politics in our world. So as we close out our series, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would work in and through the things that we've discussed these past few weeks. That through doing that, he would make us into a countercultural presence in our world. That when people encounter us and our perspective on political things, that they would have the distinct inability to put us in a category because we don't fit in any of the modern day categories. 
What we want is that more and more people would encounter the person and work of Jesus and that through that process, the world around us would become more reflective of the kingdom of God. And I just want to remind you as we close out this series that politics is included in all of that. I hope we know that at the end of human history, uh, government will not be a thing of the past. We'll still have a king and we'll still have a government. It's just that the king will be Jesus and his government will know no end, is what the scriptures say. Which is all a way of saying that there is no part of our world, there is no part of our modern world that God doesn't want to rescue, redeem, and renew. Every square inch of creation belongs to him and one day he will remake all of it as it was intended to be including politics and government. So let's not write off what God hasn't written off. Let's not give up on what God has not given up on. Let's not bail on our world because God didn't bail on us. But instead, let's join him as he makes all things new. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the scriptures. Um, God, for what they teach us about um, governments and leadership and God, just all of the arenas of life that, that your scriptures speak to. Um, God, I know in this room um, we're probably all over the the political map. We're probably all over the map in regards to our um, beliefs and also our frustrations with government and things in that arena. God, I know a lot of us, we look at, um, we look at our world and we look at the government uh, of the authority structures in place and all we see is brokenness most of the time. God, and to be honest, there's a lot of bad to see, to be sure. And then I know a lot of us probably look at government and authority structures in our world, and um, maybe we see them as almost this unmitigated good, and that anything that criticizes them or challenges them or speaks ill of them is automatically wrong and suspect. And God, um, I pray that we wouldn't be that black and white about it either. But God, I pray as followers of Jesus that we, would, that we would be able to reach this sort of balanced, nuanced, thoughtful approach to the world around us and specifically to politics, to government. God, where we both see how they're good, but also we see where they have limits. And so God, would you make us as followers of Jesus into into both and sorts of people. Would you help us not to see through the narrow perspective of any particular political leaning? But God, would you help us see outside of that to see how 
There are so many things in our world that are reflective of your kingdom and how you want things to be, and there are so many things that are not reflective of how you want your kingdom and your world to be. And God, would you challenge us to both honor the things that are and to do something about the things that aren't. And God, for all of us, would you, uh, would you help us to be, in the words of Romans 12, zealous people that care passionately about the world around us. In the words of Jeremiah 29, that care about the common good, the welfare of the city and the place where you've sent us into exile because in its welfare, we find our welfare. So God, we need your help. Um, There's obviously just a million voices shouting at us in every direction in regards to a subject like this. So God, we need... We need you to to silence the unhelpful voices and to speak your voice into the midst of it by your spirit. And God, by doing that, would you transform us from the inside out? Would you give us a new heart and new eyes? And God, would you help that to shape how we approach all of these things? We ask these things in your name for your glory. Amen.